0: Welcome to the Compost Bin of History. Welcome, welcome. The podcast where we stick our pitchforks into old ideas and mix them around with the new ones for a nice, even breakdown.
1: Uh, I'm Jared.
0: I'm James.
1: And uh, t- I,
0: I, I forgot how to introduce a podcast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I usually don't do it, so uh, we're going to. We're gonna talk about uh, some French people and all kinds of stuff today. Well,
0: you know, Jared, I've I've heard from the listeners, I've looked at the statistics, I know what these history pigs want, <laughs> I know what those history hogs want out history there. Hugs. They want the they want that blood and guts. All right. They want they want the bloody battles. What's the violence you guys want, huh? Yeah, it's today. It's uh, it's Jared and James Ellie Bellelli and we're doing History del Fuego, and we're going to talk. We're going to talk about the bloody battles. All right,
1: you sicko, we'll give you some gore.
0: <laughs> so our topic today, and um, our topic for the next subsequent three episodes of this show, it's going to be all bloody battles, culminating. Penultimately in the Battle of the Alamo, followed by the Battle of San Jacinto. But today we're going to look at actually what is the bloodiest battle in the history of the state of Texas. Bloodier than any of these other ones we're going to look at. And I just want you all to be prepared for lots of gory violence and just classic history nerd shit.
1: Yeah, this episode's going to rock.
0: Well, yeah, because, you know, we've got to kick it off. We basically have the Tom Brady of history. We've got Napoleon Bonaparte here with us. Bonjour. (laughs) Comment ça va? (laughs) Yeah, so someone who was both good and lucky and, well, right up until he wasn't, basically. You know Tom Brady will probably continue to win Super Bowls until he you know has the Russian army like just swoop in and you know crush him,
1: yeah, he's gonna have to go to Lambeau Field and he's gonna get spanked
0: <laughs> yeah, he's gonna have to like turn over all of his uh his territorial holdings back to nationalist governments and <laughs> yeah, so you know. This, this podcast today is going to be all about the Napoleonic Wars and how so much of what happened in the 19th century really kind of stemmed out as a direct result of Napoleon's actions in Europe. Even a lot of things that don't normally get associated with Napoleon still are a direct result of Napoleonic Europe. And honestly, even something like the Alamo, if we wanted to, you know, give the two-word description of why the Alamo occurred, it would be because Napoleon. Now, obviously, we're not going to do that because we like things a little bit more contextualized, right? We're going to lead up to the Battle of Medina, the battle, the bloodiest battle in on Texas soil. But we'll start out with terrible history teaching in America on today's episode part three of the Battle of the (laughs) Alamo forget about the Alamo So, Jared, what do you remember learning about the War of 1812?
1: Uh, the White House burnt down. Yep, that, <laughs> was
0: a, that was a highlight. Yep, Britain besieged Washington, D.C., burned down the, the White House. Do you remember anything about, like, why there was a War of
1: 1812? Because uh, K- Canada was asking for
0: it. <laughs> I mean, that, and that's the thing, right? We also remember, yeah, that um, America f- tried to invade Canada, failed, you know. Um, there, was some, there was actually a, a Native American confederation, uh, the, the Tecumseh Federation, which allied with Britain and kind of sought to take back regions of the Great Lakes from the early United States. That's kind of interesting, right? They besieged Detroit, And then I think everyone remembers the Battle of New Orleans when young Andrew Jackson, along with, interestingly, several Southeastern Native American tribes who were then his allies, such as the Cherokee, went and defeated British forces at the Battle of New Orleans. And, of course, Andrew Jackson would remain a stalwart defender and supporter of the Cherokee people. Right, Jared.
1: <laughs> yeah, he really, he really loved the indigenous communities.
0: <laughs> well, um, that's why
1: Trump likes him so much.
0: <laughs> yeah, so you know, they the War of eighteen twelve was full of you know al- allies of convenience, and Andrew Jackson would of course go on to instigate the Trail of Tears and the removal of the Cherokee people from their lands. Some 20 years after they allied with him in support of his cause during the, the War of 1812. But in spite of, you know, what we're taught here in America, which usually centers upon our own national myths, the War of 1812 was actually an afterthought for pretty much everyone else involved, uh, aside from the indigenous people and the fledgling American democracy. And really, it was just a part of the Napoleonic Wars, which were occurring in mainland Europe at the time. And this is going to sound really dumb, but between the time period when I first heard the 1812 overture and the time period when I learned about Napoleon's invasion of Russia, I literally thought that the 1812 overture was about, like, you know, Washington, D.C. getting burned down and the War of 1812 in America. Uh, But, of course, something else happened in 1812, which was Napoleon invaded Russia, which was kind of a bigger deal, you know, historically speaking, than anything that happened on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. But we have to contextualize everything that did happen in the War of 1812 within that Napoleonic context. So... The thing to understand about the War of 1812 is that it was primarily a defensive war by Britain. And in in fact, it was declared by America on Britain uh, at the time. In terms of winners and losers of the War of 1812, pretty much all of the European powers got what they wanted out of it. You know, um, for England, it was a defensive war and they managed to kind of contain America while, you know, fighting Napoleon on the European continent. For um, Canada, they were able to repel an invasion from America and kind of establish that they were an independent country. They weren't just part or should be part of America. Like, they have their own national identity. And, of course, you know, America was able to I mean, the main outcome for America was that it crushed the nearby strongholds of indigenous resistance and kind of cleared up that country around Ohio, Missouri, Illinois, um, even getting up into Wisconsin and Indiana for new waves of settlement that would happen in in the coming years. The main losers of the War of 1812 in America were the indigenous peoples, because obviously... No matter who they sided with, they ended up getting fucked over and used. One thing about today's topic is that any one of these things we talk about could be an episode in itself. And certainly, like, Tecumseh's Confederation deserves, like, a more detailed look than I'm giving it here. But needless to say, um, the main losers were the indigenous peoples, even though they, you know, tried to represent their interests in the global stage. But they are up against white people, and white people are snakes. What can I say?
1: <laughs> Colonizers are snakes.
0: Yeah. So why why the War of eighteen twelve? Um, well, basically, Britain had done a lot to anger the United States in the years leading up to it. As it still remember, the main thing was Napoleon. Napoleon kind of comes to power as revolutionary France, you know, is besought by these wars of the coalitions, right? Everyone's like all the monarchies of Europe are like saying, fuck you, Republic. Fuck you, France. You can't have fucking parliaments and people voting for shit. You can't have like landowners having, having voting rights. You know, it's fucking, fucking ridiculous. So all the, you know, old guard, of aristocracy lined up against revolutionary France. And kind of that backlash is what led to Napoleon taking power ultimately. Now, as Britain sought to contain that, they had to build up their naval forces. And one of the ways it did that was through this time honored practice of Shanghaiing. Uh, Jared, are you familiar with the practice of Shanghaiing? <clears throat> Also called Press Gangs.
1: Man, I thought I was, but uh, maybe I'm not.
0: Well, just just imagine you're a, a young American merchant mariner, right? And you've just taken a load of tobacco from Virginia over to a port in, I don't know, fucking Liverpool or something,
1: right? Yeah, and then the government's like, this is now our ship.
0: And you're now our sailor. Basically this practice of shanghaiing was angering the american, you know, mariners and shipping companies in america and the government that ostensibly was making taxes from those shipments. Add on top of that the fact that britain was seeking to contain revolutionary france and blockade continental europe, which meant that as american ships were like bound with trade goods for revolutionary france They would frequently be um, either boarded and seized or they would get into, you know, naval battles, skirmishes really with British fleets. And so basically as Britain was containing revolutionary France or Napoleonic France at this point, they were stepping all over America and America had enough and declared war on Britain in 1812. And again, that's one of the things I don't think anyone really understands about the War of 1812, which is that that was America declaring war on Britain, not Britain just showing up and declaring war on America. But really, the point was just to contain a hostile United States while doing all of the important work in Europe, right? Uh, So for Britain, the the War of 1812 is basically just a joke war like no one really gives a shit about it because they look at what it's book ended by which was the battle of trafalgar in 1805 when lord nelson sunk the spanish armada right effectively ending any challenge to british naval supremacy
1: and birthing the admiral nelson <laughs> scotch whiskey
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, and of course, Admiral Nelson didn't actually survive the Battle of Trafalgar. He had his head taken off by a cannon shot, (laughs) which I think is fucking hilarious. (laughs) It's kind of a funny way to die. Yeah. Yeah. And then 10 years later, in 1815, you have the Battle of Waterloo, where Lord Boot Wellington was able to, with his Prussian allies put like the final nail in Napoleon's coffin after he came back and tried to do it a second time after his defeat in Russia. So British people look at Trafalgar and Waterloo and what resulted, which was, you know, Pax Britannia, the age of British global dominion, which would last until World War I, essentially. And, you know, they look at the War of 1812 and it's like... You guys think you won that? I mean, we got India, motherfuckers. (laughs) Like, compared to America, like India at the time was, you know, way more valuable, right? So, basically, they don't give a shit. And this is the weird thing, though. Which is that Spain in the Napoleonic Wars and the events that would happen in Spain with relation to Napoleon would actually have a lot more of a direct result and effect in American history than anything that actually happened in the War of 1812. Far more monumental what happens on the Iberian Peninsula than the burning of Washington, D.C. So we'll recall from past episodes that Spain and France, during their dynasty period, were ruled by cousins, both house bourbon dynasty cousins. And therefore Spain had supported France during the Seven Years' War and also the the War of American Independence by which Spain was an ostensible ally to the United States. But we'll also recall that some of those Bourbon reforms that, you know, the French cousins were trying to implement in Spain and its colonies were pretty unpopular. Because They were doing things like, um, you know, privatizing religious institutions, you know, or nationalizing religious institutions, seizing uh, Catholic lands and missions for the state to sell off, essentially. And they were doing this both in, you know, mainland Spain and in the New World. And with a body of people who were traditional Catholics, that was a big snub in the face. You know, we talked about, like, the cattle roundup in New Spain last time. Those types of things made people angry. And when Spain became, like, destabilized during the Napoleonic Wars, it had major effects in New Spain. So whereas the Habsburgs had created a Byzantine decentralized system for the Spanish colonies... The Bourbons had sought to centralize it and increase control, which kind of, you know, just plays into that age old spirit of the lathe, right? That pull between um, federalism and nationalism, right? Are we trying to have, you know, a singular body with a clear purpose or are we trying to make sure that as many people get what they want as possible? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Let's do all those things. (laughs)
0: well so spain was a pretty inconsistent ally for france as uh the revolution got started and napoleon came into power obviously the the bourbon monarchs of spain were not happy when revolutionary france killed one of their cousins right put him on the guillotine famously however In Napoleon, they didn't necessarily see a revolutionary. They saw an emperor, which was a language that they understood, right? Because they also were emperors. They controlled a vast amount of territory. So some of these social divisions started to pop up in Spanish society itself. There was even a group of young people called the Afranquesados, Which were the Francophiles, in essence, who dressed in French fashions and had more, you know, Enlightenment-type French viewpoints. And they were kind of fiercely opposed by Spanish traditionalists who were more, like, proud Catholics, um, more nationalist in their sentiment for Spain, and didn't really like the, you know, overarching control that, that France was trying to exert over their country. And after the Battle of Trafalgar, when Spain lost its armada, basically Spain's whole reason to support Napoleonic France just dried up, because now Britain ruled the waves and was unchallenged, and Spain didn't really have you know, a way to muster a new fleet or remain connected with its overseas colonies. So what that meant was that then Portugal and followed by Spain fell out of Napoleon's so-called continental strategy to resist the British blockade. And as they kind of started to crack under pressure, French forces invaded first Portugal in 1807, which they had to do via mainland Spain. And eventually they just invaded Spain in 1808 and forced Emperor Charles IV to abdicate the throne. Um Napoleon then installed his own brother, Joseph Bonaparte, on the Spanish throne, which kicked off a crisis of legitimacy for actually mainland Spain itself, but also all of the territories of Spain and the new world because obviously if you're even if you're just like down there in um i don't i don't know Cordoba or something right. Even if you're just down there in Cordoba and you hear suddenly that the king has abdicated and now there's some French asshole leading your country. You might be, even in mainland Spain, inclined to say, well, I don't, I don't think he is leading our country. I think we're leading the country now or some other guy or the old government. Doesn't really matter because it kicks off this crisis of legitimacy, which France then has to rush around and put down in mainland Spain. They are constantly dealing with rebellions. And basically an insurgency starts up on the peninsula. This is called the Peninsular Wars. The Duke of Wellington gets a start fighting Napoleon here. And while all of this guerrilla fighting is going on in Europe, in Spain, um, in the New World, all of those Criollos, those uh, ethnic Spaniards who had been born in the New World, started looking at this crisis of authority in New Spain and seeing some opportunities in there, right? Now, there had been previously tensions between you know locals and Criollos and the peninsular Spaniards, but it had never existed on the level of an organized effort for national independence. But after Napoleon's invasion of Spain, the elites in New Spain actually overthrew the old Bourbon-appointed viceroy. Now, they did this for an interesting reason. It was because they saw the viceroy, who had been appointed by Charles IV as his you know, stand-in in New Spain to rule on his behalf, they saw him now as a challenge to their elite power because with the emperor in Spain abdicated, they thought that this viceroy was just going to declare independence and make himself the emperor of New Spain so he is promptly ousted by a coup and basically you have uh local Criollo elites in like Veracruz and mexico city appointing the the ostensible ostensibly spanish viceroy for the next two years now eventually the the junta in spain that was still defying napoleon sends this asshole to go and you know whip things into shape in the new world. They're able to get a ship out through the English blockade. And this guy basically shows up in 1810 to take over the viceroyalty. The day after he arrives in Mexico City, the Hidalgo revolt occurs, um, led by uh a, actually a, a Spanish or yeah, a Spanish priest, Father Miguel Hidalgo y and now nowadays uh Hidalgo is known as the father of Mexican independence and unlike all of America's fathers of independence uh this guy was actually cool (laughs) so first of all he was a very learned priest he was a polyglot he spoke a lot of languages he was pretty friendly to the enlightenment and actually he had two daughters So he was not, like, one of those lame priests who, like, listens to the rules about not having sex with women and stuff. He was basically like, no, I'm going to just lead my normal life and be a priest, thank you. So not a huge fan of authority, right?
1: Sounds like an all right guy.
0: Yeah. And, in fact, he only got into the priest game because of all, and this is so funny because we talked about this last time, he only got into the priest game because of all the debts he incurred from the two landed estates that he owned he was actually like a privileged landowner but as he inherited all this land he also inherited the debt and basically he was like oh shit now i'm like poorer than i used to be and i have to just
1: doing a priest for the tax breaks
0: exactly that was it yeah (laughs) so he's there and you know he kind of is watching all this chaos and tumult occur Um, amongst the, the local elites and, you know, just getting snippets of information from back in Europe. And when this new viceroy arrives, basically, he's like, no, fuck this. We need to have an independent new Spain. Now, it was interesting because he didn't tie that to any particular political agenda. He never once said, you know, we need to have like a republic or a democracy. He just said the way things are going right now is bad. And we shouldn't be doing all this bad stuff. He didn't tie it to any kind of broader goal. He just was like, bad. And so, on 16th of September, 1810, Father Hidalgo releases this cry of Dolores. Basically, he just walks into church on a Sunday to give his normal sermon, but instead he sparks off a revolution. He says, Long live religion. Long live our most holy mother of Guadalupe. Long live Fernando VII, the rightful ruler of Spain who had been deposed. And long live America, and down with bad government. So, you know, he's kind of trying to wrap himself in a lot of idealistic and nationalistic phrases here. And, but is generally remaining positive, but then he's like, it's bad government. Bad government is the problem. I'm not going to say what the good government is, but the bad government definitely is bad, Right. Which, you know, kind of a clever idea. Keep it vague. <laughs> yeah. and, and honestly, you know, that was very appealing to people. He basically uh, got workers from local estates. He liberated people from jail, which is a classic revolutionary move. And basically just formed a good old peasant mob. And they proceeded to like raise hell all over central Mexico for well over a year. However, among the hell that they raised, they also killed a lot of those Creole Spanish elites, right? Because they looked at them as the agents of oppression for the <clears throat> Spanish monarchy. Well,
1: wherever would they get that idea, though?
0: <laughs> Maybe it was the like the previous two hundred years of treatment. Oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah, eventually though the. As what usually happens with these types of things, the viceroyalty stamped it down in 1811. And they actually put Father Hidalgo to death. They decapitated him. They mounted his his headless corpse on, like, outside of the city walls. The the old head on a pike shtick, you know. So blase. Be a little bit more creative, New Spain. (laughs) Come on. But basically, throughout the entire, you know, Spanish. Uh, or Mexican War of Independence, Father Hidalgo's corpse then just basically like sat up there outside of Mexico City as a warning to other rebels. Now, it was during this time in 1810 that our anti-hero, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, joined the army at the age of 16. And you'll recall from our first episode that he got in because his mom sucked off the governor of Veracruz. That's in history now. This is a history podcast. That's history. That's in history now. Okay. Yep. <laughs> let it let it be known. Santa Ana's mom sucked off the governor of Veracruz to get him a military posting.
1: Undisputable fact.
0: <laughs> so again, even though there was like this crisis of legitimacy, the Criollo elites in New Spain basically still supported the spanish regime um even though it had been ostensibly toppled back in spain but it was the source of their power right like if you're running a racial society and you're like pure spain blood and you're super proud of that suddenly having spain be a hot mess not a good look for you right because maybe it means that all that like blood shit is just dumb and you're actually just a rich asshole
1: yeah, it'd be a shame it'd be a shame if people figured that out
0: right yeah so yeah Santa Ana started out by fighting for the crown along with most of the other Criollo elites as these rebellions and revolutions started to pop up in Mexico or in New Spain at this time um, one of those in 1811 this guy Juan Batista de las Casas actually led a revolt in uh, San Antonio de Bexar, or de Bejar, where he actually overthrew and captured the Spanish governor. And, you know, he, he took the Alamo, right? Like, that's where it is. Um, but like most of these, it was only a matter of time until the royalist army showed up and crushed the revolt. And a similar uprising was crushed just south of there in Nuevo Santander in 1811, But interestingly, one of the rebels, Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara, who was a strong supporter of Mexican independence and a blacksmith by trade, decided to look abroad for help. Instead of continuing just to fight these little insurgencies and uh, small campaigns of of violence that would often lead to brutal backlash from Spanish authorities, he decided he was going to go to America, see what America can do. Now, Gutierrez actually traveled all the way to Washington, D.C. in 1811, and even spoke before Congress, campaigning for America to intervene on behalf of Mexico against New Spain, in New Spain. But of course, this was all happening during the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars, which meant that America was ostensibly an ally of Spain, being having trading relations with France and being at war with Britain. So America couldn't offer full support. Congress couldn't offer full support for this uh, Gutierrez expedition. However, they did assure Gutierrez that the American government would not interfere in his plans. And let's just see how much uh, they stick to their word on that. So, with that assurance, Gutierrez decided to entertain the idea of a filibuster. Now, a filibuster, filibustering is a word we hear a lot in the media today, right? Like, what, what do we normally associate filibustering with? <laughs>
1: gridlock.
0: Yeah, partisan gridlock. Um, it's a big issue in, like, the Senate, right? Yeah. Like, will they end the filibuster? <clears throat>
1: Probably not.
0: Yeah. Be- well, because what happens when someone filibusters? You just waste time and don't
1: allow <laughs> things to happen. And sort of... Yeah,
0: you be- you dis- You waste time, you disrupt the normal process of legislation. Yeah. Right? You essentially hijack the system. Totally. That's filibustering. Yeah. And this used to be known as freebooting, which was the Dutch word for piracy. <laughs> so stealing. really what what you're saying, <laughs> go ahead.
1: You're just stealing time.
0: I mean, yeah, when we talk about will they end the filibuster, what they're saying is will they end like sen- senatorial piracy?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the answer is of course no. We love we love piracy here in America. We were founded by pirates. Come on, yes. guys. Yes. <laughs> So, um, yeah, really this is, this, this word filibuster comes from a time honored American tradition that actually continues to this day of sponsoring unauthorized military expeditions into foreign countries, typically in Latin America. Well, always in Latin America to foment or support a quote unquote revolution, wink, wink. Um, the most recent example of that was when those private military contractors took a fishing boat into Venezuela to overthrow the Maduro government, I think, last year, very recently.
1: Yeah, flawless. But that was just flawless a success.
0: Yeah, well, and, and a classic, classic American filibuster. So, you know, Gutierrez was kind of receiving some pressure from people who were sort of government adjacent, you know. Like, in 1812, America didn't really have, like, a full-on intelligence community, but you still had, like, a similar apparatus that existed for the state, right? And they saw in, like they do today, they saw in this kind of pissed-off guy seeking to, you know, undermine authority in a nation adjacent to America as, like, a golden opportunity, right? So they said... Hold on, young man. Why don't you try filibustering? So Gutierrez went to New Orleans, which was, of course, now American territory after the whole, you know, what was it called? The Louisiana Purchase. And when he got there, he did what any aspiring filibuster revolutionary would do. He took out an ad in the local paper. He called on the Republicans of Nacogdoches to join him in an effort to usurp the Spanish monarchy as it existed in New Spain and to build the Republic of Mexico. Um, Among the people who answered his call was one Augustus McGee. Now, McGee was a West Point graduate, interestingly, he had only graduated a few years before. And in his military leadership, he was described as effective but harsh. Uh, at the time, he was kind of controlling the neutral ground that existed between American Louisiana and Spanish Texas, where he kind of was like regulating the flow of settlers and you know bandits and stuff like that. I always think this is interesting when I see this in a historical figure. Uh, McGee was recommended for a promotion in the military, but he turned it down. And I always think like, if you're in that type of, you know, a service position, you have to be like a crazy motherfucker to turn down your promotion, right? Yeah. Like this guy must've been some kind of hardcore. (laughs) And right after he turned down his promotion, he actually resigned his army commission in 1812 so that he could join uh, he could join Gutierrez in his filibuster in Spanish Texas. Uh and then he went for, he basically personally recruited soldiers for the filibuster. And again, I I don't I think this shows that this was always an American op, right? That you're having like army colonels resign their commission so they can join this shit. Like maybe this guy believed in the cause a little bit, but <clears throat> I mean, come on. Like I don't know. Maybe conspiracy theories have like wrecked my mind to the point that I can't even read history without seeing conspiracy. Well, I don't know. It seems but like
1: the way that the CIA does things, where they just like have somebody retire and then. Well, that's right. Like give him funding and set him up with a black op and go do what. <coughs> <Buttigieg. laughs> all kinds of Excuse crazy me. shit.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it definitely looks a little fishy, <clears throat> um, but. Uh, Yeah, McGee joins the expedition, and he takes on the rank of colonel along with Gutierrez. And this forms the infamous Gutierrez-McGee filibustering expedition. Now, um, they became known as the Republican Army of the North, or the Republican Army of Nacogdoches. And, you know, I think that symbolizes something in history, right? You've got, like a Republican army of the North. Like that sounds cool, right? <laughs> like, like you don't want to take on the Republican army of the North. Of course not. I mean, it's like some game of Thrones <laughs> shit, right? So McGee left Nachitoches, Louisiana, across the river from Nacogdoches, Texas on 12th of August, 1812. And he started out with 130 men Crossing into neutral ground, he joins with Gutierrez, and together their forces swell to 300. Now, let's dip back into strategy gaming for a second here, Jared. You know when you do a surprise war, right? Mm -hmm. Usually it's really easy to grab a lot of territory quickly. Yeah. Because it takes time to organize defenses. So, going into Nacogdoches with 300 guys, I mean, there was probably like some small battalion or, you know, detachment of a battalion defending these Spanish settlements, but nowhere close to 300 men. And they didn't have the defensive fortifications to to hold them off. So, the filibustering expedition encountered a lot of early success. They easily captured Nacogdoches. And then they proceeded to Santa Sima, Trinidad del Salcedo, which is near the present-day city of Trinidad, Texas. And they captured a fort there as well. uh, On the 13th of September in 1812. It's here that McGee, this guy who seemed like kind of the army plant, right? Now, he fell ill at this point. Now, some say it's because he got malaria, Some have pointed towards consumption, which was what they called tuberculosis back then. But interestingly, there is some conjecture historically that he might have just been poisoned by his men. Because you remember the whole effective but harsh thing? (laughs) Yeah, the guy was an asshole. Somebody just poisoned him. So it seems not unlikely that someone on the filibustering expedition... Which, again, is a band of pirates. So is it really surprising if they poison their leader? I don't think
1: it's that surprising. I don't know. Are you trying to say pirates have no honor?
0: (laughs) Among thieves? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. McGee falls ill, but they're bolstered by their success, and they continue to march deeper into Spanish Texas, advancing to the Presidio La Bahia, near modern Goliad, Texas. There's a huge fort there. You can look up the picture of it online. It looks really impressive. It's actually pretty fucking cool. And they're able to capture that without too much trouble. And this is actually just down the river from San Antonio de Bejar, right? Because if you think about, like, the state of Texas, it has coastline, but then it kind of spreads out in different tangents as you go inward. So, just marching along the coast of Texas, you know, not that far. Marching inland, that's when you start getting into the distances. So, they're able to advance on Goliad and take the fort there, just down the road from San Antonio. And it's by this point that they start to run into the defenses of the Spanish Viceroyalty. The Spanish governor of Texas, a man named Salcedo, had actually seen the newspaper clipping that Gutierrez had taken out back in New Orleans right like he knew the filibuster was coming because they put an ad for it in the paper just like last year the Venezuelans knew that the, the fishing expedition was coming down the river because they had basically advertised it on like Twitter beforehand <laughs> right like like it w- this, this kind of shit is always like pretty obvious when people try it um so he had a force of eight hundred men that numerically outnumbered the uh numerically outnumbered they outnumbered <laughs> the the filibusters, right but by this point, by the time they get there, the filibusters are like locked up tight in the fortress at Goliad, okay the Bahia and the spanish the Spanish governor Salcedo essentially just besieges the Bahia. Over the winter of 1812 to 1813. And despite besieging them for four months, uh, during which McGee died of his sickness, actually, um, they were unable to capture the fort. Now, McGee died on the 6th of February, 1813, and another American by the name of Samuel Kemper then took command of the filibustering expedition. And Kemper was popular amongst his soldiers, and he successfully defended from the Spanish governor's attacks on both the 10th and the 13th of February. Now, they killed enough of the Spanish royalty uh, or royal army that Salcedo retreated to modern San Antonio de Bejar, um, where he basically sought to get reinforcements. Now, Kemper, seeing an opportunity, gave chase. But before he marched on San Antonio, he issued a call for additional volunteers. Because, you know, they've been having some some successes. But every time you, you know, capture a new city or, you know, storm a fortress, you have to, you lose some guys, right? And 300 men, although a sizable fighting force, is not a, a huge fighting force. So they needed to be reinforced. And they get kind of this... Really interesting grab bag of people who respond to the call. You get more Americans from Louisiana. You also get Tejanos, um, the residents of uh, Spanish Texas. There's even some former Spanish soldiers, um, as well as indigenous Lipan Apache and Tonkawa uh, Indians who joined them. And they swelled their forces considerably to the point that in late March, they marched on the Spanish position at Bexar. Now, knowing that they were coming, the Royalists under the Spanish governor of Nuevo Leon planned an ambush at Rosia Creek, a little side tributary of the San Antonio river between Goliad and San Antonio. So, the Spanish royalty planned an ambush, but they were detected by the Republicans en route. And so it was sort of like what Dan Carlin says when, you know, an ambush becomes an encounter battle, which kind of becomes a reverse ambush in the end. And the Republicans handily defeated the Spanish army, which actually outnumbered them um, at the Battle of Rosio Creek. Now, uh, it's reported the Republicans only lost five men. But I think I find that to be a little bit like indulgent. They probably lost more than five men, uh, especially considering that they captured significant material, including six cannon and 1500 head of horses from the Royalists. That was when the Royalists proceeded to retreat to San Antonio de Bejar. And the Republican Army of the North gave chase and captured San Antonio on April 1st. Now, I just want to make a clear note of this because I think, you know, one thing I know you talk about sometimes on this show, Jared, is like cycles of violence, right? And how a few initial acts of depravity can get spun up and lead to these, you know, blood feuds in a sense, right? So when the Gutierrez McGee expedition captured San Antonio, they also captured two Spanish governors for Nuevo Leon and Tejas, Tejas y Coahuila right? And they executed them. The Gutierrez McGee expedition executed the two Spanish governors along with 12 other elite officers and soldiers who were present. Now, That was followed on the 17th of April by the first Texas Declaration of Independence. The Republican Army of the North drafted a declaration for the state of Texas within the soon-to-be Republic of Mexico, hopefully. And they adapted the green flag of the expedition, which represented, again, McGee's Irish roots, although by now he was dead. And then Gutierrez declared himself governor of the new state of Texas in the Republic of Mexico. Now, that little power grab maneuver and also, you know, executing the old governors and stuff proved a little bit too much for some of the Americans who were along on the journey. In particular, Kemper, the erstwhile leader of the force, along with a hundred others, then quit and returned to Louisiana. Now, he didn't take like all of the Americans with him, but he took a lot of the leadership. And that led to some dissension within the ranks of the Republican Army of the North, as there was now a vacuum at the top. Meanwhile, south of there, Spanish General José Joaquín de Arredondo had begun to assemble a reprisal force of roughly 1,500, now, he was doing this like in a very Napoleonic fashion, as he was basically moving through the countryside, living off the land, and conscripting peasants into his army. Another Spanish force, a small force with about 900 people, eventually made it up to San Antonio on the 20th of June, 1813, and laid siege to the Republican army in San Antonio. The American colonel, Henry Perry had taken command from Samuel Kemper and defeated the Spaniards at the Battle of Alazon Creek. And that success, midsummer in 1813, led to more support for the Republican cause. And interestingly, another series of American leaders showed up. Um, the first was a, actually a former Spanish royal officer named Jose Alvarez de Toledo. Now, he had been fighting the Americans ostensibly sometime before in Florida, but had ultimately changed sides and joined the American cause. You know, I think we can think of this as, um, who was that, you remember that guy uh, in the Iraq war? He was kind of like a child of the Iraqi nobility who always had like a beef with Saddam. Yeah, I don't remember and, his uh, name but, is. Yeah, but he just, like, fed fake intelligence to the Americans until they invaded, essentially.
1: like, the Americans kind of told him, like, hey, just tell us whatever, and... Exactly.
0: (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And, I mean, I think that's really highlighted because accompanying him is a U.S. special agent named William Shaler. And they arrive with more support from American, American people, you know, filibusterers, on August 1st. Now, interestingly, and I think this is very telling as well, upon arrival, Toledo and Shaler initiate a propaganda campaign against Gutierrez. Remember, it's the Gutierrez-McGee expedition. He declared himself governor. And basically, they, they exploit on that dissension that already exists in the ranks. And they lead to Gutierrez essentially being afraid for his life, to the point that on August 6th, He, too, flees back to Natchitoches in Louisiana. So now the McGee is dead. Gutierrez of the Gutierrez-McGee expedition has fled. And you have some kind of shady figures who've come in at the last minute to lead this fledgling Republican cause. So this former Spanish officer, Toledo, took charge of the Republican Army of the North. But the dissension within the ranks persisted. Um, Toledo wanted to fight the Spanish in Behar, in San Antonio. But Colonel Perry and some of the local San Antonians, and I'm using San Antonio and Bejar kind of interchangeably now at this point. They convinced him to spare the city of the destruction that would come with municipal conflict, right? Like city fighting. So instead, Toledo decided to take the fight to the Spaniards and try a surprise attack of his own. So on August 15th, Toledo, Shaler, and the Republican Army of the North moved out of San Antonio and marched south, hopefully to engage in a surprise attack on the Spanish forces which were en route to Bejar. They left with a large force, 1,400 people. So they had really swelled considerably in size from 300 that they started out with. They marched about like 14 miles south of San Antonio over a couple of days and then made camp on the banks of the Medina River near modern Lemming, Texas. Now, Lemming is only about six miles away from this point on the Medina River. And it was in Liming that the Spanish forces under Arredondo were camped. They had a slightly larger force of about 1,800 men. Now, but remember, these were, you know, recent conscripts. These were peasants. Just because they had more people doesn't necessarily mean they were better trained or better suited than the filibusterers. And so, essentially, you have these two forces that were camped out about six miles apart from each other. In August, in Texas. And that leads us to the day of the Battle of Medina, August 18th. Now, I think to kind of in- indulge the environmental aspect here, we have to consider that you've got six miles between two groups of forces, and it's August in Texas. Whichever group has to do the most movement in that six miles is going to be pretty tired, and hot, and thirsty. So Toledo had decided to do an ambush as Arredondo and the Spanish continued to march towards San Antonio. So they had set up their forces in a, you know, the military would call a defile. We just call it a Canyon where they were basically intending to box in the Spaniards. Once they arrived, however, Arredondo had likewise sent out a scouting party of cavalry to try and locate the Republican position on that same day. And it was the scouting party of cavalry, not the Spanish army, that entered the ambush near Medina. So there was a brief exchange of fire, and the Spanish cavalry retreated. Now, this is where like the fog of war comes in, Right you know, we're learning about this. We know that it was just the Spanish cavalry that had walked into the ambush, but the Republican army filibusterers had no idea. They just knew that some people on horses showed up. There was firefighting, they were shooting, and then they saw this huge dust cloud kicked up by the cavalry as they rode back towards the Spanish forces. They looked at that dust cloud and they thought that they had just encountered the entire army and they decided to give chase. Now, allegedly Toledo had said this is a bad idea, but the, you know, again, there's dissension in the ranks. People are wanting to do their own thing at this point. So the Republican army heads off after the Spanish cavalry in what is now the daytime in the Texas heat of mid-August. So as they were giving chase to the cavalry, the Republican army was slowed by the sandy terrain, pretty typical of a like river valley. And they had to drag heavy cannons through this deep sand, which was, you know, well, a huge drag. And so this lasted throughout the day as they struggled over the six miles of terrain and the heat to finally approach the Spanish forces near the river of Medina. And when they did in the afternoon, the tired and thirsty Republicans still actually had some fight in them. Encountering the Spanish forces, they successfully routed a unit of artillery from a hillside and were attempting a flanking maneuver on the main force when they were pushed back by cavalry. Now, the Spanish leader Arredondo was actually pretty surprised at the intensity of the fighting and was preparing to withdraw his own forces. But a Republican defector from the Republican army informed them that the Republicans were attempting to disengage because of their own exhaustion. Hearing that, Arredondo ordered his troops forward instead of retreat. And as they pressed on the tired, heatstroke ridden, and just, you know, thirsty... Republicans, the Republican Army of the North broke and fled in disarray. And what happens when an army breaks, when you can't retreat in normal fashion? Well, you have a massacre, and that's that's what happened. Toledo and Shaler, the American agents ostensibly, fled directly to Louisiana once they realized the battle had turned against them and essentially abandoned their army to its fate. They would both go on to you know, lead out long lives, but of the 1,400 men under their command, only 100 survived that day. 1,300 men were slaughtered in the Texas heat that afternoon. There were no prisoners taken. Anyone who turned themselves in was summarily executed by the Spanish forces. So most of the army was killed in pursuit and the Spaniards then marched on San Antonio where they proceeded to basically purge all the rebels from the city. Another 300 collaborators of the Republicans were executed in San Antonio and the Spanish army under Arredondo continued basically retracing the steps of the Gutierrez McGee expedition back to Nacogdoches and rooting out collaborators and doing mass executions the whole way. Now, I got to say, this seems pretty harsh, but remember these guys had killed not one, but two Spanish governors. And in a hierarchically organized society like, you know, New Spain, that's a big insult, right? They basically killed the political leadership. And moreover if we look at all the other rebellions that were happening around Mexico during this Mexican War of Independence this was actually pretty par for the course because the whole point was to avoid that type of insurgent campaign that Napoleon was fighting back in Spain Right? you can't, ha- you can't fight an insurgent campaign if there aren't any insurgents right so kill everybody it's the simple answer So, yeah, they carried this campaign of violent reprisal basically right back through Spanish Texas. And among those soldiers doing this in Arredondo's army was a young first lieutenant, only 19 years old, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Now, during this campaign of violent repression...
1: He's been been in for three years now.
0: Yeah, he's 19. He's been moving up the ranks quickly, though. He's already a first lieutenant. Like, he actually was, was cited for his bravery during this expedition. Yeah,
1: school's going well.
0: It's going really well for him. And he well learned the lessons of his superior officers on this expedition. And basically would, you know, kind of take his own style of governance and his own military tactics from what he learned. This would kind of presage the later events of the Alamo. Now, importantly, what Arredondo and the the reprisals in Spanish Texas did were two things that would kind of sow some seeds that would, you know, sprout bitter fruit later on. The first is the seeds of cultural animosity. Okay. Even though this was like a multi-ethnic force in the Gutierrez-McGee expedition, It was hard not to see that most of the leadership were white Americans and a lot of the the fighting men were filibusterers who to the Spaniards had no no business being there likewise as they drew forces from Spanish Texas uh, they basically then paved the way for Arredondo to do some creative destruction because as he's going through and massacring all these people He's essentially opening up the space for new waves of capitalism to come in. And where do you think they're going to come from?
1: <laughs>
0: A little closer, yeah. but yeah, again from Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama. So there's some creative destruction, but there's also the seeds of cultural animosity. And as, you know, the the war of independence continues to play out, that's going to be kind of like a seed in the back of the minds of future settlers of Spanish Texas and then Mexican Texas. <clears throat> so that basically covers the Battle of Medina, the ba- the bloodiest battle on Texas soil in history, as far as we know, over 1,300 dead. Um, meanwhile, back in Europe... Well, things didn't exactly go well for Napoleon either. We already kind of covered that, you know, he lost in Russia, that he tried to come back and then lost again at Waterloo in Belgium. And with the, the defeat of Napoleon in 1815, well, that basically ended the American War of 1812 because there was no longer a reason to be mad at Britain. And it also effectively ended the Spanish insurgency on the peninsula. What happened was, after Napoleon or Joseph Bonaparte abdicated, Spain got its old king back, Fernando VII or Ferdinand VII. But too much had had happened. Too many Republican ideals had kind of infected those mainland Spanish citizens during this insurgency. And after Spain got its king back, then it got the liberals. Liberal Spain um, ousted Ferdinand VII in 1820. They instituted a liberal constitution in Spain, which sought to reform some of the relationships between you know, mainland Spain and its New Spain holdings. And that is what basically led to a Criollo revolt in New Spain, and all of these guys who had been fighting for the Spanish royalty, like Santa Ana, to switch sides as now they were no longer defending their their class and their race, they decided what they didn't want to fight for was, you know, um, this idea that, like, everybody should have rights and everyone should vote on things, because they were the elites, right? So that was essentially why all these guys changed sides. The plan of Ayala, or Iguala, I don't know how to pronounce that, essentially is what brought them all around. And... Santa Ana by this point would kind of become a leader in the military fighting for this, you know, change of heart. And, but basically you have an empire of Mexico declared by these Royalists. And so you have like a Spanish emperor, um, for a little while. I think it was a Habsburg again, actually. (laughs) And then, um, yeah, that, that lasts for like two years and then they overthrow that guy. And then you have the Republic of Mexico after the empire of Mexico. And Republic of Mexico would be a little bit more liberal in their flavor as well. And one thing that they definitely wanted was for more money to come in, right? After fighting a revolution, what happens? You're usually fucking broke, yeah, you gotta right? You got to get some
1: economic development going on.
0: You got to get some stimulus and where are you going to get stimulus? But from the United States and a new wave of settlers that would include the topic of our next episode one David Jim Bowie. Oh yeah. Subject of the sandbar fight. Alright, there was a lot there, but I just kind of whipped through it. I know you fell asleep at one yeah, point. Yeah, I didn't right?
1: realize how tired I was.
0: <laughs> well, I often listen to podcasts to fall asleep, so I'm gonna count that as a compliment. Yeah. And <laughs> Oh man.
1: I just didn't realize how beat I was. I did a lot of <laughs> hiking today, man
0: yeah
1: <clears throat> it snowed like six or seven inches today oh nice yeah. and it's Thanks. all gonna melt tomorrow so had to get out there and
0: yeah it was warm yeah, here today
1: enjoy it yeah it's supposed to be like 40 you now.
0: let's see i did have one um issue i had a correction requested by Tickman. Oh, okay um we accidentally caught referred to the american bison as buffalo oh, in the last episode I'm usually... So, just want to clarify, that's an American bison. Only a distant relative of the European buffalo.
1: I'm usually pretty good at remembering that.
0: Also, you know, we kind of mentioned in our Alamo episode how, you know, there were different like levels of like raiding going on on the part of the indigenous peoples in this area. And we had mentioned the raid of San Saba, where the... The, the whole like Presidio and, and, uh, or, and uh, mission was like burned down, right? By uh, invading Apaches, I believe. And I actually looked that up because we had kind of argued over whether or not anyone was killed. Apparently, eight people were killed, including the mission priest. Okay. And then I would assume some of the mission indigenous peoples who had like kind of changed sides. But importantly, they didn't kill everybody. There's definitely way more than eight people there because they were kind of sheltering the local community. And it was really more about just like destroying supplies, taking, you know, uh, portable goods and livestock. And yeah, and then just like killing some people who they particularly had a grudge against, you know. Sure, there were some massacres on the part of indigenous peoples. There were plenty of massacres on the part of Europeans on the indigenous peoples. And what we think of as, like, the type of violence that, you know, we associate with, like, Western movies um, or even, like, books like Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, that would really come later on as a result of those, you know, upswings of cycles of violence, like what we see with, you know, the conflict between Spaniards and Americans. Oh, yeah, but Tickman said that his own own home village – had been like sacked and raided like four times before it took off. So he kind of pointed that out too. So yeah, I think that covers it for battle of the Alamo part three, the bloody battles, the battle of Medina because Napoleon. And honestly, like why, why is it there? Like Texas, California. Why is that all? united states today it's napoleon
1: uh, i don't know i'm sure it's not something about bootstraps
0: <laughs> i mean i guess we like you know defeated the tecumseh confederation so we got like wisconsin and minnesota out of that right
1: oh great <laughs> Where, <where'd it> go? <laughs>
0: Jared's just loving his uh, status up there in the upper Midwest right now.
1: (laughs) Uh,
0: Yeah, man. I don't know Uh, anything. Any any takeaways? Anything you want to wrap up with, there, bud? Boy, I don't even know. This has got to be our most like laid back episode we've ever done. I think you're pretty (laughs) laid.